When we think about police officers solving a case and catching the guy or the girl who did it, maybe we think of a high-speed car chase or a foot chase through the streets or a tearful confession from a suspect who finally realized that the law had caught up to him. But all too often, cases are solved in the unheralded parts of police work, in the nitty-gritty. Leads are developed in the, in the margins, in the file cabinets, in the evidence locker. And that's what happens here. A slide in this case was labeled animal hairs, but someone discovers, hey, wait a minute, these are human hairs. And when they get tested for DNA, well, I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County. And today, we've got a DNA match that seeks again to solve the mystery of the Oakland County child killer. So before we get there, we've got to get there, if you know what I mean. This case would have been tough to solve if everyone was working together and firing on all cylinders as it was. And in this case, of course, whether it was the 70s, whether it was today, that doesn't really seem to be the case. And it's important to get into this because it shows what power plays are at stake, where this case was potentially messed up, what could have been done to maybe solve it, and really maybe some of the motivators behind why it still remains open. And I've had to put together a lot from things I've read, books I've read, documents I'm, I've gone over, and it seems to me like some DNA evidence is found at the Detroit FBI office when they're poking around looking for it. And that's sent through Michigan State Police to the FBI. In Quantico, they have a big lab there. They test DNA, all kinds of stuff. Williams, he goes for an update on this DNA that they sent to Quantico, and then they actually also find some slides that were mislabeled. They say things like animal hair and, and stuff like that, but when examined under a microscope, it's found that there's actual hair there. One of the hairs is degraded in this sample. Uh, I believe three were found on Tim King, one on Mark Stebbins. So you've got some human hair here. So that's also gone to Quantico for testing. Michigan State Police is going to get those results eventually. It's kind of a time-consuming process. And, you know, in an ideal world, people share information, you work together, you do what you do, and you get this case solved. In this case, of course, it's not as simple. So here's what happens essentially. There's a new meeting because Jessica Cooper, she tries to be this good Samaritan, you know, things are going to be different under me sort of situation. And what I have now taken to call Jessica Coopering, she says, uh, essentially in a report to Marnie Rich Keenan, they do like an interview, and she says, hey, you know, I didn't like the way that meeting went after the Bush lead came out and all this stuff. It just didn't seem right to me. So we've added to the task force. We've added these new people. Anyone from Oakland County, really, with investigative capacity, essentially, is, is how I take it, is invited to the task force. So they've got this new meeting coming up. And Corey Williams, you know, in Livonia Police, and now he's over uh, with Wayne County, I believe, at this point in time at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, but, you know, instrumental. So he calls Harold Love at Michigan State Police to essentially say, hey, you know, we got some new people coming. It's going to bring them, this meeting is going to bring these new people on the task force up to speed. Do you want me to, you know, go over leads and talk about it? And Love's like, yeah, bring your notes. That'll be good sort of thing. I mean, I can relate to that in corporate America. You're just talking about you know, bringing people up to speed, new people to a project, whatever it is. I mean, that's, that's kind of how things go. But then Corey Williams asks, hey, do we have an update on the DNA that we sent to Quantico? And Love, well, he's, he gives them the answer. He says, yes, we actually have a positive DNA match. 
I mean, this is shocking. A positive DNA match from this DNA, these hairs sent to Quantico. Exciting, electric, but Love says he can't get into the details. The full reports aren't back. It's preliminary sort of stuff. So Corey Williams, he goes to Kim Worthy same day at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, and they call Harold Love and are like, what, what do you mean? Give us the deets. What's going on? And Love, the audacity on this man, he says, what do you mean? There's no DNA evidence. I didn't say that. We have no new evidence. There's no new evidence of any kind. Shocking. But then the next day at the meeting, they double down and they say, yep, there's no new evidence. And uh, to those who are up to speed on where the police leads are at this, they're like, this is like outdated. They're basically saying we, we've never really made any progress in all these years. And Williams notes that Gary Gray can't even look up at the table. He can't even look at him. So there's more to the story, but essentially after months of silence and no real communication from Michigan State Police or the Oakland County prosecutor of any kind, Kim Worthy, you know, the prosecutor in Wayne County, goes to a judge in Wayne County. She petitions him to convene a grand jury into the homicide of Timothy King because this is essentially a way uh, that the judge can issue subpoenas and force Michigan State Police to turn over evidence to Wayne County that they say doesn't exist. Because look, I mean, again, it doesn't take a genius here to figure out what's going on. Love let it slip that they have DNA evidence. Then they absolutely went into a stonewalling strategy saying they had no evidence. And uh, Wayne County, well, they did a lot of the work here and they want to know what the heck is going on. And this is iconic, okay? This quote here. This man comes in from the top rope. The judge, this is a, so, I mean, this isn't firsthand reporting. This is a interview Detective Williams did with Marnie Rich Keenan in which he is remembering what the judge said, but this is an iconic quote from the judge here. This is a quote from uh, that interview. Quote, the, When Worthy was done making her case for the grand jury, Smith dismissed, Smith is the judge, dismissed whatever retaliation the task force might take against Wayne County with two words. Fuck them. I well remember this case. These families deserve better. And to me, what is a little bit of a 4D chess move, as, as we call it, I don't know if that's a common term, but, you know, essentially uh, an equivalent one would be everyone else is playing checkers and we're playing chess. Kim Worthy calls in Marnie Rich Keenan to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. Marnie Rich Keenan, of course, at this point, has broken the Christopher Bush lead in the news. And this grand jury, the subpoenas, everything's going to go into effect soon. So when these things go into effect... You can't really talk about it. You can't talk about it. You're under subpoena. You know, you're under oath. You can't disclose that you've been subpoenaed. It's this whole thing because that could compromise the testimony, the jury, etc., etc. So Kim Worthy calls in Marty Rich Keenan before all this stuff goes down so she can tell Barney Rich Keenan in exacting detail basically everything that's going on because what Wayne County doesn't want to have happen, at least as far as this podcaster is theorizing, is for subpoenas to be issued, like gag orders or other things to be issued, them to be on like total lockdown and have this be buried and this never come out and no one's allowed to talk about it because of some ruling from the court. So they basically just tell Marty Rich Keenan just about everything that they know at this point. The subpoenas are issued, and Michigan State Police's hand is forced. But the blood is so bad, and things are so bad at this point at time, that, look, like I went over, subpoenas, they're secretive, you can't talk about it, you can't do anything related to it. 
But Corey Williams is still very worried. Quote here from the Snow Killings, quote, while the MSP officers were forbidden to disclose to anyone anything related to the grand jury, Williams was still worried. Fearing retaliation, he packed up all the case records he kept at home and stored them at a neighbor's house for safekeeping. He told his wife, Michelle, if they show up and I'm not here, just cooperate with them. Tell the kids it will be okay and call me right away. Michelle's fear was well-founded but also surreal. She wasn't worried about criminals showing up at her door, but fellow cops intent on bringing down her husband. End quote. Surprising no one, the subpoenas and everything comes out, the judge, everything is ruled. You gotta give Wayne County and Livonia Police everything you got. Now, again, what were we looking for here? What was the topic of such contention? And it was the DNA testing of these hairs, which, like we've discussed before, really, uh, as far as we know, can give a mitochondrial DNA match. That's not a nuclear DNA match that says it was only this guy, it could only be this guy, but mitochondrial, which is still really good at ruling people out and really good at finding patterns and those kinds of things, but not good at saying, hey, this was the only guy. But it's valuable, it's good, and I'll let Dr. Ferran talk a little bit about mitochondrial DNA and hair, because that's what we're dealing with here. And let me back up for just a second on how hairs work. So a typical hair is, uh, is in various stages of growth, and it can be actively growing, uh, or it can be just kind of stagnating and hanging around, or it can be ready to be shed. And we all lose hairs all the time. That actively growing hair down in the root has a lot of living cells. And those cells are basically cranking out what hair is made of, which is the protein keratin. So they produce lots and lots of keratin and they're living healthy cells. So if a hair gets yanked out of your head or wherever, uh, it will have often a root and we've all seen that I'm sure. And that root is made up of living cells and it's very good for doing nuclear DNA testing. But as those cells down in the root fill up with keratin, uh, they kind of explode literally and all this keratin is pushed up into the hair shaft, and that's why your hair grows, and there's more living cells down below that that then repeat that process. Uh, but the nucleus pretty much gets destroyed. So in a hair, uh, the hair shaft itself, we don't really find nuclear DNA to any extent uh, that is at least viable for what the typical testing, DNA testing we do now. But those little tough mitochondria that I talked about, they get pushed up into the hair shaft as well. Uh, but they kind of survive. They don't do much because there's no longer part of a cell, but they're there. And so if we have a hair shaft that's shed, so it has no root anymore, uh, then we can still often get mitochondrial DNA from that hair where we can't get nuclear DNA to any extent. Uh, how much mitochondrial DNA depends on the hair? Thicker hairs have more of the mitochondria because they have more of those cells down below than a really fine hair. So the hair on your body hair is often not a very good source of DNA, whereas head hair is. Or if you take a really good hair, like a something from the, a tail of a horse or something, that's a really good, that will ha can have lots of DNA in it. So that's what's at stake here. And I'm going to speed you up a little bit because now at this point that I'm talking about it, everything's in. All the DNA evidence is in. Everyone knows everything, all the DNA has been processed, and a shocking realization is realized by Wayne County and all those folks. Three human hairs in all this DNA testing were found to be a match to each other, which means that they came from the same person. They had the same mitochondrial DNA within them. One of these hairs was found on Tim King's groin area. 
Another one was found on Mark Stebbins. And I don't want to overlook that because up to now, I think it's fair to say that we knew that these cases were related or we had mostly ironclad theories in terms of the way the bodies were dumped, the killings were done, the area that it was in, etc., etc. But we didn't have scientific proof that these murders were committed by the same person. Now we know the mitochondrial DNA matches and they're committed by the same person. So that's big in and of itself. But something that overshadows it and is even bigger is that the third human hair is traced back to an evidence grab at the time by a police technician. And they know whose car, it was matched to a car, they know whose car it came from. A man by the name of Arch Sloan. So this, right, this could be it. The same person left behind all three hairs. There's a hair in Arch Sloan's car that matches a hair on Mark Stebbins and a hair on Tim King. So Arch Sloan, he's got to be the guy, right? Well, of course, in this case, it's not that simple. The case is traced back to Arch Sloan's car because at the time, Arch Sloan's parole officer was hearing the news of these kids went missing and they called in Arch Sloan as a tip to police. Police interviewed Arch Sloan at the time. He passed a polygraph. This one, it seems like it was an actual pass and not uh, a fail labeled as a pass. Uh, but they also take some fibers and things from the floor of Arch Sloan's car. Arch Sloan says, sure, I got nothing to hide. You can take the stuff from my car. So they gather up all these hairs and all this stuff. So that's how Arch Sloan is linked, because the same hair is found in Arch Sloan's car as is found on Tim King and is found on Mark Stebbins. However, when they get to Sloan, he's still alive, and they test his DNA. And you'll hear more about this in the interview uh, that I'll air in its entirety with Dr. David Ferran. But the cliff notes is... The hair is from Arch Sloan's car. They know it's from his car, but it doesn't match Arch Sloan. Now, who is Arch Sloan? Why is he a suspect? Why could he be involved here? Well, it's very interesting because Arch Sloan, at the time of the killings, was a known pedophile. He's on parole for criminal sexual conduct, and what he did was always very sickening. He had a trailer in the middle of the Packard plant, it, for those who are familiar with the Detroit area, I'm sure you know what it is, but it's a plant in the middle of Detroit, a former auto plant. It was huge, massive, and is now a symbol of great urban decay, urban decline, and it was so back in the 70s. So he's got this trailer in the middle, and he's raping these kids. So that lines him up to be a pretty good suspect. They were always wondering, how could you keep these kids for days? They don't get out, they don't make noise, no one notices them. Well, if you've got a trailer in the middle of a place that looks like a war zone, yeah, I think that's a good spot to keep him. So Arch Sloan, he's got this. He's raping kids in there. This is a known thing. He's out on parole. And he's actually serving as a service technician, like a like basically a tow truck driver, at um, a service station in Farmington Hills. Now, Farmington Hills is just over the Wayne County border into Oakland County, and it's pretty close to some of these sites, especially the body dump site of Timothy King being right there on the border. And I can speak to it for my own validity as well. Living in Livonia, Farmington Hills, not a very far drive, not very far to get to. So as the investigation into Arch Sloan goes and continues, they're looking for what he might have been doing around the time of the murder. And it's really interesting what they find because the night that Mark Stebbins is abducted, Arch Sloan calls police and says basically to the effect of, don't bother coming in, I'm working late tonight, so the light is still going to be on in the shop here. Uh, what? 
I mean, that's just really that's just really weird to me. It's like I don't know. It's like I, it's like uh, I always think of when Han Solo in, in Star Wars and and he's talking to the Imperials. If you remember the scene when they're trying to break Princess Leia out, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, we're fine. Everything everything's fine here. Uh, how are you?" And you know, obviously the Imperials are very suspicious, and they're like, "This doesn't seem right. What's going on?" But he's trying to act casual. He's trying to act normal. It's it's like he's calling attention to something that, you know, you wouldn't have ever given a second thought to. You know, if you're the police and you drive by a service station and the light's on, I don't know that you're exactly going to give a second thought to that. But because you specifically call attention to it, now all of a sudden, it's more suspicious. Yeah, he's calling the police saying, I'm going to be working late. Don't bother coming into my shop. And then that night, and he's a convicted... Uh, He's he's a uh, uh, out on out on probation at that point, but he had already had uh, uh, criminal sexual conduct charges against him and stuff. So he's a convicted uh, sex offender who calls the police and says, "Hey, my lights in my shop are going to be on tonight. Don't bother coming by." That night, Mark Stebbins goes missing, and years later, they find out that DNA from one of Sloan's cars is a match to to the body. They're like, what? It's not that hard to track down Arch Sloan because, no surprise. He's in jail for life for the molestation of a co-worker's kid. So they track him down in prison, and this here from an Oakland County uh, polygrapher, Chris Lempier, his polygraph of Arch Sloan. Here are the questions that he asked him this time on the murder of Timothy King. Before, back then, he was polygraphed for the murder of Mark Stebbins right after that murder happened, but he's never been polygraphed for Tim King. So here are the questions from that report. Quote, or quote, Question, do you know for sure who did kill Timothy King in March of 1977? Answer, no. Did you personally kill Timothy King in March of 1977? Answer, no. Did you have any personal physical contact with Timothy King? Answer, no. Did you assist in any way in the kidnapping of Timothy King? Answer, no. Are you deliberately withholding any information you have about Timothy King's murder? Answer, no. So the results of this in the report here... Quote, significant responses to the pertinent test questions indicative of deception, end quote. So essentially, Arch Sloan failed the polygraph of Tim King. And he does place himself at the toe shop the night of the murder with that 911 call. So, look, I know plenty of people were in the vicinity, but Arch Sloan, he's not that far from Ferndale. Farmington Hills is close to Livonia, and so it's not extraordinarily close to Ferndale. It's not right next door. But if you're going to dump... Mark Stebbins' body, or you're going to abduct him and keep him, or whatever you're going to do to him, you're not super far from Ferndale, and you're even closer to Livonia. So later, Corey Williams, and they're really trying to put the pressure on Arch Sloan. They're saying, we got DNA in your car. We got it. We have the DNA in your car. What happened? Tell us. That kind of stuff. Because the police know that the DNA is not a match to Arch Sloan. But Arch Sloan doesn't know that the DNA isn't a match to him. So they've got him sweating, and they've got him thinking, and all signs at this point kind of seems to point to Arch Sloan kind of being fidgety, kind of being nervous. I mean, look, who wouldn't if you're being accused of that kind of crime? Uh, so I don't know how much stock to put in that, but as far as police accountings go, Arch Sloan, while he's not saying much, he's kind of, uh, I don't know, sweating in his chair a little bit. The seat's getting a bit hot. Jessica Cooper calls a press conference to announce major, major revelations in the Oakland County child killer case. Now, that couldn't at all be motivated by the election coming, huh? Well, at this press conference, 
I call it more of a circus myself, uh, but she announces that DNA is found in Arch Sloan's car. So then this is the first the media or anyone is hearing of Arch Sloan as a suspect that Oakland County is really touting as their top guy. But they say, or she says, in this press conference alone, I think, is that's an important distinction, that the hair does not match Arch Sloan. So now Arch Sloan, the police are putting the screws on him. Maybe he's going to talk. He's you know really squirming uncomfortable in his chair in these interrogation sessions that they have. Now he knows... Hey, the hair in my car, that didn't belong to me. So he's like scot-free. He doesn't have to talk. He's suddenly not feeling any pressure at all. The investigators are furious because any leverage that they had over Sloan to get him to divulge this information is now largely gone. Now, why the heck is this? It seems peculiar if you're listening, I'm sure, and it seemed peculiar to me. What the heck is she doing calling this press conference sort of preempting any sort of real announcement with these announcements that she's making about Sloan. And it infuriates investigators, like I said. Well, it's an election year, and it's the speculation of a lot of people, of course, never confirmed, but it's also, I think, a pretty ironclad thing, as far as this podcaster is concerned, that it's an election year, Jessica Cooper's running up against a tough electoral opponent, this guy named Bishop, and she wants to win, so she wants to show progress in this really old case, and uh, they're going after Arch Sloan and saying, you know, here's the information. And of course, it's disguised as this plea. Oh, public health bus, if you know Arch Sloan, or this Pontiac Bonneville, if, you've, if you saw it at the time. But it's just her trying to win election, okay? I mean, I don't think it takes a, a real genius to pull back the curtain and figure this one out. And Barry King is actually trying very, very hard to get this guy Bishop elected. He even shoots a TV ad for him and that he wrote himself, and he says in the ad that Jessica Cooper, that they accused him of a felony. Say what? I mean, what? They accused Barry King, the father of, uh, grieving father of Timothy King, who's been in this thing since the beginning and gave you a very promising lead, and in any case, even excluding that, he's the father of a victim of the most notorious crime, and you accuse him of a felony? How'd that come about? It's a little diatribe here, but I think it's worth getting into just so you can see, again, how the victim's families were treated. So essentially, Oakland County is running this grand jury, sort of at the same time the Wayne County uh, grand jury is being convened, and they subpoena Barry King. Now in Michigan, I don't know what it's like other places, but in Michigan, it's illegal to tell anyone that you've been subpoenaed because you could compromise information or any number of things. There's, there's good reason for it. Well, it leaks to the press that this grand jury is happening. It was supposed to be highly, highly confidential. So Paul Walton, Jessica Cooper's right-hand man, just straight up accuses Barry King in front of a judge. Hey, this is the guy who leaked it out. Barry King, he's a felon. He's a criminal, all this stuff. And Barry King and his lawyer are, like, stunned. Like, And I think that's just beyond the pale. I mean, there you have no evidence whatsoever, and you're accusing the father of one of the victims of these notorious crimes, a crime that you probably could have solved at the time that you did not solve. This is on you. And now all these years later, you're coming back and saying, he committed a felony? An attorney committing a felony? I mean, come on. I mean, get that shit out of here. I mean, that's that infuriates me. <laughs> Some of the most of anything in this case, just, yeah, no evidence. I'm just going to accuse you of a felony in front of a judge. And nothing happens to Paul Walton. Nothing happens. Barry King actually reaches out to the reporter who broke the story, and he confirms and writes, you know, I'll testify in a court of law and all this stuff, that he didn't, uh, Barry King did not leak this information. The guy had other verified sources to leak that grand jury. Just despicable, another despicable act. 
think it's pretty ironic that the office and the people who have been saying that Wayne County, Livonia, Corey Williams, insert other entity here, has been a leak all this time. It seems like Jessica Cooper potentially is the ultimate leak. Elbrooks Patterson minces no words. Of course, uh, we have to take his words potentially into account because he's supporting Bishop, who is the person running against Cooper in this election. But Elbrooks Patterson, he says in a interview in 2012 with Marnie Rich Keenan, quote from the Snow Killings here, quote, what you have here is a panicky candidate for re-election for prosecutor's office, and that's Jessica Cooper. Just in this case alone, she's managed to alienate almost everybody. She's looking for anybody to blame but herself. Now, despite all this, these happenings, all this stuff going on, the police are still giving it a try with Arch Sloan. They offer him full immunity. They say that they'll put him in prison for check fraud. Anything to get him to talk, that's what they're going for. And it seems like he might actually take the deal. I mean, this is a pretty good deal. Immunity, they'll put him anywhere. They'll give him a cushier prison. Uh, it won't say why he's there. And this is actually of significance to Sloan because since he's been outed by the media as a suspect in the case, he's being treated much worse at the prison by anyone there, especially the inmates who are beating him up and really just uh, making his time there that much worse. Sloan seriously seems to be considering the offer. At one point, it's even offered something extremely rare. He's in life in prison. He will never get out life in prison. And police say, tell us what you know and you'll spend the rest of your days on the outside of prison. We'll let you go free. Now, of course, not totally free. He's got an ankle tether. He's got all these restrictions. But a guy who would never see the light of day outside the prison walls again, they offer him freedom. And they monitor his calls from inside the prison to kind of gauge where he's at. And I will quote here from, uh, it's a transcript of Sloan's prison calls. Marnie Rich Keenan, this is a source that she cites in The Snow Killings. But here is a quote, quote from Sloan, quote, Our favorite people were here yesterday to see me. Voss, which is a truck driver buddy of his, I guess. Oh no, not them. Sloan, well, this is a different scenario this time. She, who's, uh, she is Powell, who's the new leader of the task force for Michigan State Police, told me that she's cutting the red tape when I get out so I can live with you, and that will be no problem, though I might have to wear a tether, but I don't give a shit about that. Foss, I can't wait to spank that ass just for looking. Sloan, they didn't buy the stuff about a transfer of hair's DNA, and they didn't buy the stuff about hitchhikers, but my problem is that a hair that came out of my car matches hairs on two of the victims. They know I'm not involved, though. They think that I can't remember who was in my car. Voss, well, I hope this gets resolved now so you can get out of there. Sloan, me too, partner. End quote. So that's kind of crazy. Sloan says, they think I can't remember who was in my car. Which, to me, this is the statement that I'm keying in on. The police, they key in on some other statements that people make and say, oh, we're making something out of this. This is the statement that I'm going to make something out of Eddie White here, the Forever Children of Oakland County. He says, they think I can't remember who was in my car. Now, to me, that's pretty much an admission of guilt. Like, you do remember who was in your car. Because if I say to you, or if like, let's say your mom is asking you to do the dishes or something, or you know, think back to when you were a kid and your mom was asking you to do the dishes. And you say something like, she thinks that I emptied the dishwasher. To me that says, yeah, they think that, but that's not actually the case. That's not actually what happened here. So 
it goes through, they go through Sloan, and they're talking about this is the only possibility you have on making it out. And he's deliberating, and they think he's going to take it. They think that he is going to want to get out. And Sloan says, well, you know, this is me paraphrasing. Well, you know, wish I could help you. But I sure don't know what happened to those kids. To come so far, to get so close to a guy who so clearly knows something about these killings, if not outright committed them himself, ultimately clams up. When we know he wants out, we know. He clams up, and he says he doesn't know after being given a sweetheart deal by the police. Where have we heard that one before? I talked to Jay Rubin Appleman about what the deal is here, because to me, this is shocking, okay? Because we still have DNA, these mitochondrial hairs, that were found in Sloan's car, but they don't belong to Sloan, which means they belong to someone else, someone that we haven't been able to identify. If you get really deep into the weeds, into the investigation files, the investigations into Sloan's associates and associates of the associates and all that stuff, I mean, that's a big web of people, and it goes on and on, and they're able to pretty much rule most of these people out. So... Who does that DNA belong to? We don't know. And then you have the associates of Sloan, and you've got Lamborghini, who doesn't say anything, and you've got Chris Bush and Greg Green, who are dead, but man, the evidence tying them in is so, so, so strong. And you've got Arch Sloan, and you've got whoever this other guy is, and you've got James Vincent Gunnels, who doesn't say anything. So who are these people protecting? How come, when offered deals that other prisoners could perhaps only dream of, do they wholesale turn them down so so uh the answer to your question why is is i i have to believe for starters i have to believe that um that uh, art sloan uh what could be could be charged um in, in some way related to these crimes and i think that he probably doesn't believe that you know that they're going to let him skate for you know if he, it's deep i think it's deep with arch sloan now we get back to vince gunnels though um so ours anyway so arch sloan has reasons i think that Sloan's protecting himself vince gunnels you have to say who's he protecting because he was a teenager man now he he is not vince gunnels is not a violent criminal at least that's not what he's been in prison for throughout his life he goes back and forth from to prisons for like drug related offenses. Right, you know? nonviolent offenses. Yeah, and you feel you know, you gotta feel really bad for him because it's clear, it's clear. I mean his his life started off very rough. He was he was molested by these guys and, and rolled around with these guys. He I think for him, he might have some sort of fear that that like he may have been witness to this stuff, you know, or something and he's tr- like doesn't want to go there mentally is afraid of 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 possibly um compromising himself and and he is not facing any kind of like you know violent criminal offense so it's not like he he doesn't need the the quote reduced charges or whatever because right now he's just right he's in and out um, he's in and out on drug offenses he's not facing any kind of long-term sentence if he can stay off drugs and so I don't think he has any motivation to say anything. There's nothing. I mean, and here's what I've said before. Now, I, I am I, like, you know, look, man, I'm not a professional law enforcement officer. 
nor nor a lawyer nor a prosecutor nor you know I'm not in the system of, of and to know how this works, but I have got to believe that if you were to push um, Vince Gunnels and put charges on him for whatever the charges are related to withholding um, information to you know hindering of an investigation or whatever, right. you know you start you start putting charges on him for this stuff. Um, you know, he might, he might talk a little bit, but I, I realize that that's a gamble and I don't know how that works, but I know they do that shit all the time. Like, you know, they pressure people all the time to give up somebody else with actual charges. Now, why haven't they done that to Vince Gunnels? I don't know, but Vince Gunnels failed multiple polygraphs once admitted to intentionally throwing a polygraph. I got to believe that's a right. on some level if you're, um, and well, that's and, a hint. And, that's definitely, uh, <laughs> Well, I don't know, obstruction of justice or hindering an investigation or something. Something, something, because he admitted to throwing right. it. Um, I read the transcript, right? And and then absconding, all these absconding charges, you know, I, I don't know what happens with him when he's on parole and he takes off and goes to Montana where his sister lives and then eventually makes his way back to D- Detroit area, and but or Michigan, I mean. And, and But but the point is, I, I, I don't know why nobody has pressed this guy the way you would press somebody who, um, listen, let's be honest, man. The criminal justice system is 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 a mess, and and I and I and I have to believe that if if Vince Gunnels were a black guy um, in Detroit or something, he'd be pressed a little differently. If his DNA were found on a body, and that's the fact, man. Vince Gunnels' DNA was found on one of these bodies, man. And you're not putting charges on this dude. And he's a and he's absconding from justice, and he's failing and throwing polygraphs, and he's, you know, it's weird, man. So like, I I, we know we know, and I, like, this is why my podcast is uh, titled what it is. You know they know, uh, they know something. Um, now I think also other people know something, man. I think um, I think that uh, Ted Lamborghini knows something. I think um, Lawson did, um, but he's gone. Um, you know, and and um, I think too that there are several early, early back in the day police officer, OG police officers on this case that that knew stuff that that you just never going to get anymore. They're either dead or they're never going to. If they're alive, they're eighty two years old and they're never going to talk about it. You know. So in this craziest of darkest and just terrible of cases, it seems that we've reached. A dead end. All suspects vetted. A lot of questions, but no smoking gun. No way to say that one person for sure is the Oakland County child killer. It's... I just don't know how to put into words. It's... I mean, I feel exasperated after spending hundreds of hours of my life researching this podcast going into it. I can't even imagine the people who spent that much more time trying to bring justice to the families and justice to us all. Next week, I'm going to air in its entirety the interview with Dr. David Ferran. I think it's just incredibly interesting, and it didn't make it into the podcast. And then we're going to have one final episode where I recap some last-ditch efforts to get the case solved, some mysterious missing evidence, and where we can go from here in the Oakland County child killer case. Because after all we've come, after all that people have done, and after all that's been reported, and all that's been compiled, 
I still think that we can solve the Oakland County child killer case. And it could be possible. I did get some Freedom of Information Act requests back from the Michigan State Police and the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office that I think are enlightening in a way. And I think that, you know, the potential is still out there to get this thing solved. I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County. And we're going to, after a lesson on DNA, get into finally the end of the road, maybe the end of the line, and why I still think there could be a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, once you have a DNA result, you can, that's an electronic result that's on your computer. It's like degraded in, in some way. Could it help you if you have like a degraded sample or like a, you know, you can't get quite as good info? Can these sorts of databases help with that? Because you're just looking to get put in the ballpark rather than a one-to-one -one match or, or not so much. They can definitely help. Uh, and that's along two lines. I think now solving the case boils down to the evidence. And I don't know the last time that somebody really went through the available biologicals. The Forever Children of Oakland County is a podcast produced, written, and done entirely by me, Eddie White, out of a burning desire to see these cases solved and a love for my community. This was not free to make, and if you want to support the show, you can do so at anchor.fm slash eddie-white4 slash support. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash E-D-D-I-E dash W-H-I-T-E four slash support.